0: Today's guest has played a key role in countless landmark theatrical productions and events in a career that has spanned some 60 years, including the construction of the Delacorte Theatre in Central Park in 1962, the original production of Hair in 1967, the development and premiere of A Chorus Line in 1975, the revival of The House of Blue Leaves in 1986, Contact in 1999. The Coast of Utopia in 2006, and most recently, Sarah Rules in the Next Room, currently on Broadway at the Lyceum Theatre, and that is barely skimming the surface. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to welcome the Executive Producer of Lincoln Center Theatre, Bernard Gersten. Hi, Bernie. How are you? I'm impressed just reading the handful of things I, I pulled off. Um, there's so much to talk with you about. Um, as I was looking over your career, it just struck me. I look at five names that along the way you've had the opportunity to work with. John Hausman, Joseph Papp, Francis Ford Coppola, albeit not on stage, Gregory Mosher and Andre Bishop. That – the opportunity to work with just those men is extraordinary and they having the opportunity to work with you. So – Let's just start at the beginning um, and and work our way through. You are originally from Newark. You went to Rutgers, and where did theater come in?
1: That went into twenty. That you just done in twenty years of my life in one sentence. <laughs> well, we've only got an then, hour. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> but feel free but to it's bring been up twenty anything years missed. to do it all.
1: <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I, there's no starting point other than uh, I was born. That was the starting point, and it was indeed in Newark. And somewhere along the line, I was in my first play, and then I was in my second play and. uh mm-hmm. Prior to that, I didn't know what a play was. I didn't know what a, what a play was when, when I was in my first play. Well, and, I was only and, in the third grade ah, in Blue Street School, and I got to play a doctor, and all I remember about it is that my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, took a pair of his eyeglasses and knocked out the lenses, and he gave me what was my first prop. And I had a little doctor's bag, and I had a little short overcoat, and the curtain opened. It was a, um, a traveler curtain. It opened sideways, not a, not a guillotine curtain. And that was my first experience of being on the stage. And I have no memory other than those, that listing of things that <laughs> surrounded that. And it wasn't until my second performance, uh, which took place at the end of my sixth year, sixth year in elementary school, or sixth grade, not sixth year, sixth grade in elementary school when um, I got to play the Mad Hatter in the Mad Hatter's Tea Party for our sixth grade graduation that I first got my I got my first laugh, and that was a life changing thing to be on stage and get a get a first laugh and um, so um, those were incidents along the way and by the time I got to high school, I played the character lead in our high school musical the graduation musical, and i now i 'm skipping almost as fast as you did earlier <laughs> and playing the lead in the high school musical uh or not not the lead, the character lead, I must say, because I played an 84-year-old guy, and I had two songs and two dances, and as a result of that uh, performance, I was voted the best actor in the graduating class, and also the wittiest. Those were two good designations. I was not, no consideration was given to the likelihood of my succeeding at anything, but the two designations I got I thought were very... Uh, very, very satisfying to me at that time. In college, I continued to work uh, more in the theater, which was extracurricular at Rutgers, than anything else. And uh, so, I what stopped, were you
0: actually studying? Pardon? What were you actually studying? Uh, business at Rutgers?
1: administration. Uh-huh. But I wasn't giving it too much attention, <laughs> and uh, they were. Gonna, I was going to get failed in accounting. But I made a deal with the uh, with the professor saying I promised never to practice accounting if he'd just give me a passing grade and give me the credits that I needed. <laughs> and he agreed. And uh, I have never since practiced accounting, fortunately. Um, but I've been accountable. Um, and... Um,
0: So you were doing the extracurricular theater at Rutgers, apparently more than your classwork, and still acting?
1: Uh, No, I stopped getting parts. I stopped getting parts in college. I was in competition with a big fat guy, and uh, he was more of a character juvenile than I was. I was not good-looking enough to be the leading juvenile and not, uh, not enough character compared to a big fat guy to be the character juvenile. So he got the parts and uh, I became a technician. I learned to build scenery and to hang lights and need, and to sweep floors and people who do, did those things were always welcome. Theater never had too many of them uh, whereas they did have too many candidates for actors' parts. That hasn't changed to this day. Anyhow, that, that's how it all happened and I became a technician early, early on and stopped being an actor and um, – and the rest of it just unfolded sort of logically in its way.
0: Well, you went into the service.
1: I did. And what happened was uh, uh, it's so curious how one's life takes its form uh, unaccountably as a result of things that happened earlier on. Actually, my college director, who was a part-time um, director at rutgers because rutgers didn't have a theater program as such it only had extracurricular theater my college director wound up stationed in hawaii where i was also stationed in the army and at one point i found out that uh, maurice evans and judith anderson were doing macbeth for the troops and maurice evans was in the was in the army judith anderson was not in the wax um and I got to see the Macbeth, and then I realized that nothing would serve me but getting out of the Quartermaster Corps, which is where I was, and into special service into the special service unit that was stationed at the University of Hawaii and so I went to my college director, who happened to be in the Navy uh, and a uh, an, an ensign or a lieutenant j g and uh, and said, "Could you put in a um, good word for me with Maury Evans and say I would love to the opportunity of transferring to his unit. Anyway, it all worked. And so my college experience led to my getting having an army experience, which was a transfer into a special service unit with Maurice Evans, where, among many other things, we did the, um, the G.I., what was called the G.I. Hamlet, because it was a two hour, two and a quarter hour cut text, which was about as long as you could hold the G.I.'s in thrall. and um, But the sequence of events from college to the Army uh, to Morris Evans led to my first professional engagement, which was when Morris Evans did that G.I. Hamlet on Broadway at the old International Theater, the theater where, the now, where Time Warner now stands, uh-huh. the theater built by William Randolph Hearst for his girlfriend of the time, Marion Davies. And uh, that was where we played that G.I. Hamlet. So that was my first experience. So you see, I haven't really traveled very far from Columbus Circle, where <laughs> the International Theater was located, to Lincoln Center, which is only six blocks north.
0: Yes, but you did it via Hawaii, which is a bit of a distance. <laughs> so so you, you had a little trip in between. We should say for, for some of our younger listeners um, – Maurice Evans was one of the one premier, of, one, one of the leading
1: three British actors of the uh, pre-war and war period, and the three were Leslie Howard, um, John Gielgud, and Morris Evans. And Morris was was the third of the, in in chronological order, the third in order of appearance, and I don't know, perhaps the, not as quite distinguished as either Leslie Howard or John Giel Goodner. Did he have really quite the career that they did? But he he was no slouch.
0: No, but strangely and sadly, the thing he's perhaps most remembered for out of pop culture is he ended up playing uh, uh, the father on Bewitched.
1: Yes. He yes. was, yeah. he was yeah. Samantha Stevens' father and right. that's you – know, Well, he made the transition.
0: He made the transition playing right. a very grand and yeah. playful figure. Yes. So, yeah. so anyway, so he – you came back. You got out of the service. You came with that show back to New York. And my and, first professional job. And at that point, you were the assistant stage manager. Yes. Um, you were also in the ensemble. Yes. Uh, understudying? And understudied, yes. Um, th- the, usual, the, usual, the usual catch-all. Yeah, it's it's worth also mentioning that also in the ensemble with you was a guy named Ray Walston, right? Uh, certainly well known. And I saw that the production was actually brought into New York by by the famous Mike Todd.
1: Yes, all correct. Boy, you've done your research very well.
0: Well, it's it's really extraordinary. I mean, I started off with mentioning five names, and I've I've flashed on so many others, but how did the hamlet do was it a hit when it when it came in
1: when you do your first show on broadway you don't have any perspective you really don't know what a hit is or what a hit isn't uh it was a show you were in a show you were earning 60 bucks a week it was kind of exciting to get right out of the army and into a show and be in the theater and i wasn't absolutely certain that was what i wanted to do i felt that i had a Far, far greater and higher duty to become a trade union organizer and so I gave myself just six months um, to see if I could get a job in the theater or earn my living in the theater and if I could then I would and I wouldn't have to be a trade uni- union organizer which I thought was the most important thing to do which was to organize or to be one of one of you know thousands of organizers of the working class uh, because that was what would advance the uh, uh, the cause of workers in the United States at that time in the post-war period, hmm. but, but but it the didn't theater, work out.
0: The theater thing worked. The just well, I, was I, it was it that being an organizer didn't work out, or was it that the theater thing worked?
1: No, I got I I had my priorities set out very straight. First choice, the theater. Second, obligation. A choice of obligation was to be a trade union organizer. Hmm. Since I managed my first choice, I didn't have to go to the second (laughs) to this day.
0: Now – you, but I might yet. <laughs> <laughs> you, for it looks like about fifteen years, were stage managing all kinds of productions, both here in New York and outside of New York.
1: I did, I worked at a number of uh, with a number of titles, which were stage manager, uh, production stage manager, production manager, tech director, um, general manager. I saw a lighting design credit
0: even for you on yes, something. Yes. No,
1: I, I I got one of the best notices of my life from uh, Richard Watts of the New York Post for the lighting of the World of Shalom Aleichem which we did at the Barbizon Plaza Theater which Trump turned into something else, Donald Trump that
0: mm-hmm. is. There was a period where you were working on a lot of the city center revivals.
1: Yes, yes I did, I did two or three stints at the City Center. I was the stage manager of um, Anna Christie with Celeste Holm and uh, Art Smith and Kevin McCarthy. And I was the stage manager of uh, Tovarsh with Herbert Berghoff and Uta Hagen. And also the stage manager of um, a a bunch of musicals when Billy Hammerstein was producing a series of musicals at uh, City Center. And they were in the order of appearance in a six-week season. There were two weeks of Guys and Dolls, two weeks of South Pacific, and two weeks of Finian's Rainbow. What's interesting is at this very moment, Finians and South Pacific are both alive and well on Broadway.
0: Well, South Pacific, yes, alive is, and well on Broadway under your aegis under my, and Andre's. Under
1: my loving hands. But we,
0: we, should, we should explain that, that City Center in that period would often take shows that hadn't been off of Broadway for very long and do a revival Well, the quickly, reason
1: was that they were able to acquire – readily acquire touring productions, physical productions, so that the scenery, props, and costumes were kept in packages in warehouses. And uh, at one point with Gene Dalrymple, we did Brigadoon, and with Billy, we did those three musicals. But uh, they didn't have to build scenery or costumes, and they would bring in the production stage manager of the touring productions. They would cast them, and
0: uh, and they'd be up in a jiffy. It was amazing. And you're mentioning shows. I, I was amazed again in looking at some of the people in these. The guys and dolls that you mentioned was with Walter Matthau as Nathan Detroit, right? And uh, the Finian's Rainbow was with Merv Griffin as yes. Woody, which yes. just and Helen Gallagher. Helen Gallagher was in a lot of them. Yes, not his yes she was. So yeah. so pretty. Extraordinary. Yeah. You also of the names that I mentioned at the beginning. You went up to the American Shakespeare Theater in Stratford, Connecticut. I did to work for John Hausman and, and this Jack was in, Landau. Poor in, Jack in the very early days of that festival, which in its day was was quite extraordinary.
1: Well, it was it was itself uh, and. It, It it was extraordinary because there was a sudden rash of Shakespeare in the northeast sector of the United States and Canada, and it began in Stratford, Ontario, and then it went on to – Guthrie then went to Minneapolis – and took the impulse that he had originated in um, Stratford, Ontario, and carried it to Minneapolis. And then there was the American Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Connecticut, and the New York Shakespeare Festival, Joe's Shakespeare Festival in New York. So there was uh, lots of Shakespeare going on at that time. And I would say of the lot of them, uh, perhaps uh, the least – well, I shouldn't say the least, but – uh, the the, uh, the Stratford Shakespeare Festival was not a distinguished one. It left no it, – it didn't leave its imprint in any significant way as compared either to the durability of Stratford, Ontario, of the Guthrie in Minneapolis, of the New York Shakespeare Festival.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting. As someone who grew up two towns over from the American Shakespeare Festival in Stratford um, – there's a couple of generations of who fed it, people fed it. who who lived off it and who were taken to it. And I even yeah. hear stories from people yeah. up in Massachusetts or even down of in course. New Jersey yeah. who were taken. So at its time, it had it had an impact, and indeed, you know, John Hausman is sort of a legendary figure. So I I have to ask: Were you hired directly by Mister Hausman, or did it uh, no, come well, to you another the, way? The,
1: the the influential person was a prior friend, Jeannie Rosenthal, who was very near and dear uh, to John Hausman, and Jeannie recommended me to John, and I got hired.
0: Hmm. Now, in that period. Um, you were one of a number of people in the theatrical industry who were called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. And this came out in the press and there was some uproar at, at, at the theater about you being called. Well, you
1: well, no, I mean at my theater? At, 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 at Shakespeare, Stratford. yeah. Oh, it wasn't an uproar. It was a, a, a the roar of mice. It was a mouse <laughs> roar. Um,
0: but, but can you tell us about that experience? Of because appearing it's something before the
1: Un-American Activities of Committee? Of appearing
0: and what it well, meant you in know, your professional you know,
1: life. It was like, like having a bar mitzvah. You, you didn't achieve your, your majority until you'd been in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee, depending, of course, on how you behaved. And I was an unfriendly witness, and uh, the world was divided between the friendly witnesses and the unfriendly witnesses. And uh, there was a very salutary comf- company on both sides of the equation. Uh, but we were very snotty about uh, those who were t- – who, uh, you know, who kowtowed to the Un-American Activities Committee and name name Naming names was a kind of a stool-pigeony thing to do. And uh, some of us did not do that. And uh, I must say I didn't suffer greatly as a result of that. There was just a few whips and a few scorns and it was over.
0: Hmm. Again, because there were newspaper accounts, uh, the venerable Arthur Gelb wrote about the theater and about that – there were board members who resigned because you were kept at the theater? And-
1: I don't think anybody actually resigned. I, thought, <laughs> I think there was more threats of res- resignation, but there were counter-threats as well. Hausman and Hepburn said that if, the, if, I, if they fired me, they would leave. Hmm. And that was a very powerful, uh, you know, added a counterbalance to those who threatened to resign because of it. And in my memory, nobody ultimately did resign. Certainly I didn't. And then Hausman and, Hausmann and uh, Hepburn didn't either. Hmm. So. So those must seem, uh, you know. You you talk about those days the way I talk about uh, the epoch just before that. You know, there are these periods in the life of the American theater. My own my own view of the Amer- of the theater, the theater that I have known my lifetime of the theater, is just the last half century of uh, of the prior century. We're now in the next century. I like very much being in this century, only because. When you consider the alternative, you're either in it or you're out of it Mm -hmm. and I much prefer being in it. But that half-century was a really interesting century because – half-century because it was the half-century after the end of the Second World War, 1945. So 50 to 2000 was a very interesting time in the theater, which by the way, the – although it loomed very large and important at the time, the red baiting, uh, the uh, red channels, the – the blacklist all the all those awful manifestations of the un american Activities Committee and McCarthy were of a period, but actually there were about forty years that were outside the that roughly ten year period in which all that stuff obtained it was r- rather unfortunate but uh, it 's gone mm-hmm. we lived, We lived through it we lived
0: past it we did indeed, so let 's move past it and move to as you said, you were. You had many different titles. You were doing tech roles. You were doing various stage management, assistant stage management. How did you come in 1960 to the New York Shakespeare Festival?
1: Oh, I'm – again, in that sequential series of events uh, that led to my college director being in Hawaii and getting me to Mars 7, while I was with the special services unit in Hawaii, uh, I made friends with a guy um, whose name – was Bob Carnes. He was an actor, and he was in the Army, and, uh, and we became friends in the way of friendship. And Bob went back to California after the war, and I came back to New York. And at one point in 1947, Bob's wife and I were working together at a summer theater in New Jersey. And, um, and when that ended, I was out of work And at one point, Bob called me and said, we're looking for a tech director uh, for the Actors Lab, uh, which I knew to be an outgrowth of the old group theater, uh, West Coast Manifestation of the old group theater. And it sounded like a good enough job. And so I packed up and took a plane and in early 1948, went to California and joined the Actors Lab in Los Angeles, just behind Schwab's drugstore on Las Palmas Avenue, I think, Street avenue, uh, and became I think I was tech director there, and that job lasted for about nine months. And Joe was very active at the actors' lab as a uh, a student in the first instance and later as an acting teacher and a sometime actor. So all those things, and we we became pals. And uh, it wasn't until a couple of years later, after I had returned to New York that Joe came to New York in a touring company of Death of a Salesman. And our friendship was renewed and extended when he was in New York. And that was in 1950-ish, 50-51. And shortly thereafter, Joe began the, the genesis of the New York Shakespeare Festival, began about 54, 55 at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church on the Lower East Side. And I didn't work there, but we kept abreast of each other. And then during the years that I was the stage manager at Stratford, which was uh, 57, 58, 59, Joe was beginning his first um, uh, development of Shakespeare performances at the Lower East Side with Colleen and J.D. Cannon. Colleen Dewhurst, I should have had. I don't know. If you, there's no other Colleen, <laughs> I don't think. Um, and um, he started and in the park in 57 yes uh, yes the first the tour free was in 57 the mm-hmm. and, and then the controversy with Moses anyway by 1960 uh, Joe said come and work uh, I had had a show that closed as I recall and Joe said why don't you come and work uh, this summer in the festival and I did and that was the beginning of my working together with Joe um, in, with Shakespeare in the Park. And were you but it was immedi- just a temporary
0: summer job. Were you immediately associate producer in that role? Uh, I
1: think my first job was production manager. Hmm. I remember the first budget for my first summer was $125,000 for the whole season.
0: Hmm. So you started there in 1960, and as I read, the Delacorte was built as a temporary structure in 1962.
1: Yes. Uh, what happened was the, there was even a more temporary structure Uh, that lasted from 1957. 57 was the traveling stage. In 58, uh, they built a temporary stage and brought in bleachers and chairs, and that became the theater, and light towers and sound equipment and all the above, and rigged it. I was not yet there, and that was the theater. And then in 1960... My first year there, it was still a temporary theater consisting of this temporary stage and bleachers that were rented and chairs that were rented and all the other equipment that was necessary that was rented. And uh, it was subsequent to the controversy with Moses that we're not going to
0: dwell on. But Unless we should just explain what you're referring to, which oh, is that Robert gosh. Moses – Everybody
1: should read the – you know, do the background. <laughs> well, Why are we, we making this – we're doing this show for
0: lazy people. <laughs> well, that Robert I just Moses, want to touch on the highlights. I understand. Okay. But we should say Robert Moses was Robert Moses the head of parks. I
1: uh, took, took issue with Joe out of uh, partly uh, political bias because uh, Joe was accused of being a communist. And uh, Robert Moses did not cotton very closely to alleged communists. But he decided that what was happening that it was that there was a, uh, a consequence of having a thousand, a couple of thousand people gathering to hear Shakespeare in the park, right. free Shakespeare in the park, was they were eroding the grass. And that was unquestionably true. A thousand people in a relatively confined space will – inevitably erode the grass and he said therefore they have to charge admission and that led to the great moses pap controversy which was very widely likened in the press to david and goliath and the illusion of the time was that moses was goliath and joe was david a role that he immensely enjoyed at the time because moses was a towering figure not only this moses but the earlier moses as well And Joe, David-like, was slight of of frame. Anyhow, he he pulled his mighty slingshot back and heaved a boulder right in the eye of Moses, uh, who was defeated in the courts, saying he, despite the fact that he was the commissioner of parks, he had no right to stifle free Shakespeare in Central Park and to impose an admission charge if the producer didn't require one. So it was an interesting controversy and Joe was a, a hero and that was his first taste of fame and celebrity, positive fame and celebrity, the next – which combined, by the way, even at that time with a certain amount of red baiting because Moses said – and not only that, not only was the grass eroding, but Joe was a communist. Hmm. And obviously he must be sneaking some communism into Shakespeare's play uh, to undo the masses. That's why he didn't want to charge admission. Charge admission, people wouldn't be subverted in quite that way.
0: Mm-hmm. So the the construction of the Delacourt. So Moses, in
1: a remarkable turnabout for a public uh, servant, which he was, said, "Well, if the if the courts decree." that Shakespeare in the Park is a good thing and their admission shouldn't be charged. They should have a proper facility that provides dressing rooms for the actors with toilet facilities and water and uh, accommodations for the audience, and it should be a temporary structure, but we should put it up every summer. And so he had the Parks Department Design Division design a temporary structure um, which theoretically, since it was put together with steel, put together with nuts and bolts and planks fastened to the steel and seats bolted to the planks, it was all – you could take it down. It was like an erector set, theoretically. Of course, it would have cost a zillion dollars to take it down, store it, and then bring it back the next summer. So although it was a a temporary installation – it, once in, it stayed there, and lo and behold, it's there to this very day since 1962, which for a temporary structure is quite a long life. Anyway, uh, but that – it was an interesting aspect of Moses' character that he was able to do that flip and and seek from the city council – $250,000 to build the temporary theater that was subsequently named the Delacorte Theater. Mm-hmm. By the way, the 250000 when it went out to bid, uh, was not adequate to fund it. And so one day he was walking somewhere with his friend George Delacorte and said – and George said to him, uh, Newbold – not Newbold, but Robert – oh, no, by this time – Moses was out, out of sight. He was gone. And the new parks commissioner was a guy, a very nice man, whose name was Newbold Morris, who was a strong advocate of Shakespeare in the park and uh, was supervising the building of the new uh, parks department facility. And um, walking with George Delacourt one day, uh, Delacourt had installed the Alice in Wonderland statue in, in Central Park at the, kids, at the at children's zoo. And had gotten great pleasure from that gift to the city, and he said to Newbold Morris, Newbold, there's uh, I would like to make a gift to the park. Is there anything you particularly need? And Newbold reportedly said, Well, there's a new play. There's a playwright, a playwright, a playground that is badly in need of rehabilitation over on East 79th Street or wherever, and so I really could use twenty five thousand dollars for that. And George Delacorte said, No, I'm thinking of something much grander than that. And I mean a grander amount of money, and uh, and Newbold Morris said, "Well, I just got the the bid for building this Shakespeare Theater, and I'm one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars short." And George said, "You've got it." Wow! So that's and it was not till opening night uh, that Newbold Morris said, and I named this theater the Delacorte Theater. Hmm. That's how the Delacorte got its name.
0: And we're only up to 1962. I know. We're going to keep going. When was the decision made that the New York Shakespeare Festival had to be more than just a summer operation and needed to be able to be indoors as well? Um,
1: Joe has a – had a periodic table of discontent and it was a cyclical um, aspect of his psychology, nature, persona. Uh, that he would get bored about every eight and a half years and would need some new stimulation. And um, after the Delacorte was built and after the mobile theater was built, uh, and six, five or six years later, it was time for that periodic table to come up wanting again. And Joe, as a matter of fact, made his first trip to Europe in 1964, where he encountered both... uh, both Peters, Peter Hall and Peter Brooks. I was with them, as was the then chairman of the board of the New York Shakespeare Festival, a guy named Bert Martinson. Coffee name. Don't you like the way I say coffee name? <laughs> Nowadays, we have uh, Norma Hess and we say Norma Hess, oil name. <laughs> Those are wonderful names, Hess's and Martinson's and others like that. Anyway, uh, Joe went to Europe for the first time in 64 and saw – the theater of the, at the Two Peters were then running Stratford in uh, Stratford-upon-Avon. And they had recently, within a year or so, taken winter quarters at the Aldwych Theater in London. And they were, doing, they were not doing basically Shakespeare, although the pretense for taking the winter theater in town in London was to have the Shakespeare Theater have an outlet in London rather than just the summer festival in Stratford-upon-Avon. But they did a much broader body of work. They went far beyond Shakespeare. And, uh, and this has sudden appeal to Joe, who I think uh, was subject to boredom with Shakespeare at about that point. And suddenly the idea of having a theater that could operate all year round and that could do contemporary work uh, became very attractive and appealing to him. And so he set out to do that. And I don't remember what the question was.
0: Well, it was just about moving indoors. But there was that desire. There -hmm. was something
1: less than satisfactory about gearing up only for the summer and then the summer lasts 10 weeks and then you're out of work. You're not out of work exactly, but you don't have – you're not driven by theatrical production for the other – uh, nine months of the year, nine and a half months of the year. So there was a natural yearning. And together with that yearning was to do something other than Shakespeare. And mm-hmm. that was in part derived from the experience of the two Peters uh, in London and with the Aldwych. So that was the impulse. And we began looking for a place where this might take place.
0: And ultimately found the old Astor Library. The old the Astor, Astor Library,
1: built in three parts over a 30-year period from 1850 to 1880, going from the southern building to the middle building to the north building. And the three buildings were very much the same, other than that they were separated by the years in which they were Mm -hmm. built, which led to one being an all-brick-and-mortar building and one being a cast-iron building, decorative cast-iron building. Mm -hmm. These are structural systems. And uh, the third one also being a structural cast-iron system. Anyway, we found that building. The building was available. It was going to be torn down. Uh, it was a prospective landmark. The Landmarks Commission in New York had just come into being. And, um, and uh, by a very uh, fortuitous um, cross-pollination, um, the designation of that building a landmark gave the landmark a cause on which to begin to be the Landmarks Commission, and it impeded the developer who planned – who had acquired the right to buy the building by placing a deposit on it and um, and appealed to his civic nature to give up his rights to the building so that it could be preserved as a landmark and become a theater for the New York Shakespeare Festival. The price of the building, in case I just saw a question hanging on your lips, was
0: $575,000. That wasn't my next question. Well, but there you good are. Good to know. Um, my next question is, as you said, the desire was to be able to do more contemporary work, and in 1967, you couldn't get much more contemporary than the show that opened the that theater. Yes, that's absolutely true. And that show was hair. It made no sense at all.
1: But uh, What do you mean? Well, I mean, obviously, nobody would have expected that a New York Shakespeare Festival that decided to go – uh, a, a theater devoted to the cla- to one classic, uh, Shakespeare. You know the body of work of Shakespeare. Deciding to expand its repertoire, one would think it would go to other Elizabethans or <laughs> to uh, I don't know. They who. worked their way up. <laughs> worked your way up slowly, and you wouldn't get to air for another thirty years. But it was in part the uh, the extraordinary uh, capacity to leap. Uh, in directions that might not have been suspected. You would not think that the same sensibility that had spent so much of his energy in developing the Shakespeare Theater, because although we can talk about the Shakespeare Theater and sum it up in 15 minutes, there's a lot of legwork involved in putting on a single production and creating a theater that's based on Shakespeare and sustaining it with inadequate funds i mean it's one thing if somebody dumps a whole pile of money on you and says what can you do for this whole pile of money but if you say no i'm going to do i'm going to do something and i'm going to scratch and dig and get the money that all the money i can in order to do it and never have enough money never have enough money nobody ever got paid enough nobody ever had enough big enough budgets for scenery or costumes or rehearsal it was always a struggle And to go from that and suddenly say, well, we're going to venture in a new direction. We're going to do contemporary plays by American writers and that's going to be the program of this theater, which was very much ahead of its time. And so when Hare opened, it was perhaps the most outreaching uh, object, theatrical object that one might have chosen and it's to Joe's credit uh, that he did choose it. And, of course, it came to a very unsatisfactory end there at the public theater. It played its eight-week run. Another play was scheduled to follow it. It was a production of Hamlet, oddly enough, directed by Joe with Martin Sheen in the title role. And so Hare was over. Uh, but we ran into somebody who offered to give us $50,000 to move it and $50,000 to move a production like Hair even in those economic times, you know, less demanding than the times that we currently revel in. It was not a lot of money, but it was enough money to take it to a nice spot on Broadway, oddly enough, called Cheetah, which was a disco, a bar and disco on, I think, 48th or 52nd Street in Broadway, between Broadway and 7th. And we moved it up there, and it it had a dismal – nobody came. Hmm. The long and short of it was that nobody came. And so we closed it after about four or five weeks in disarray and disappointment. That's as many disses as you want to have on a single day. <laughs> and uh, But curiously, the man who had given us the $50,000 and with whom we shared our rights was not persuaded that hair was not uh, something that might find its way. And so when we gave up our rights to hair, which we just did because we weren't running it, they expired. You don't hold on to rights of plays that have failed on you. you, you they returned to the author. Anyway, Michael acquired the rights to hair for Broadway and hired a new director, Tom O'Horgan, and Tom, in his wisdom, thought it would be very much in keeping with the spirit of the show if at the end of the first act, everybody got, most everybody got naked, and between getting naked and other directorial Phillips, the show got a new life and got a sizzling review from the New York
0: Times, and Hair was launched in its Broadway run. As we speed through your career, I had read a comment that, uh, in the newspaper, where somebody commented that you and Mr. Papp were the perfect good cop, bad cop. What I was struck by was that they referred to Mr. Papp as the bad cop, and you as the good cop. And it's usually the art the artistic one who's always seen as the good guy and and the managerial one who has to come in and and do the hard stuff. do you think that was a fair assessment or yeah, well, how well, do you, you feel who was the good cop and who was the bad cop or just how do how did the relationship work between you? How did it, was, it work uh,
1: with the called the Russian defense the way to uh, the way <laughs> the way to handle Joe. And I, I use handle. Uh, I don't think Joe felt that I handled him, and I didn't really think I handled him, except the way a trainer handles a, a horse, uh, and uh, the way I—it's not the way a, hand, a handler handles a horse, I don't think. It's the way—the romantic view of how a handler handles a, a delicate horse, you know, a, 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 a horse that's edgy. A horse that you want to run well, and what you do is you stroke the horse and you whisper in the horse's ear, and you give the horse a carrot or an apple, and you talk to the horse that 's very important and and you realize that the horse, after all, is still a horse, and although there's a head on one end there's a horse's ass at the other end anyway I, I just made that joke for <laughs> the purposes of this discussion because. Uh, as a matter of fact, my feelings about Joe as I sit here in front of you uh, are very ambivalent because I've been spending an undue amount of time on the Kenny, du- reading the Kenny Turan book. Well,
0: that was one of the questions we're talking about. That would be free okay. for all, Joe Papp, the public, yeah. and the greatest theater story ever told for those who do wish to do their homework. Right, um, right, About yes. this conversation.
1: Now available in all, in all <laughs> the bookstores. But it's an interesting book and it's an oral history of some uh, – provided by some 120 – colleagues of Joe's over a great number of years and excerpted uh, with a good editorial ear and eye by uh, the author. So it is an interesting book. And uh, I myself read it first by reading all my bold face face entries, which is what one does. You know, when you appear in a book, you go to the index and you see how many entries you've got and you see who's got more. And then you read yours and decide where you've been misquoted all those things. But anyway... uh, I've been spending some time with Joe, and frankly, you've got me on a bad day, Howard, because I'm really bored out of my skull with him now.
0: Well, I will ask you one more question because I uh, want to we'll move go on. on uh, simply, the impact of Chorus Line. We don't no, have no, no, to... But
1: we didn't finish Good Cop, Bad Cop. Well,
0: we didn't. You, you sounded like you didn't want to, no, but no, if you're no, willing no. to, I was finish. never...
1: I'm not a bad cop type. I'm a good cop type, Right. inevitably. And Joe, Joe, uh, because of his autocratic nature... And because of his arcane notions about leadership uh, would not shrink from the duties that uh, leaders have, which is to hire and fire. And uh, Joe would always say when he had to fire someone, he said, I want you to know I'm doing you a favor by firing you. And Joe, he said that to me as a matter of fact. I don't think he said it at the time, but when he fired me, Later, he said, it was the best thing I ever did for you was to fire you. Hmm. And there was – that wasn't the best thing he ever did for me. But uh, that I uh, continued to have a a reasonable life after after the New York Shakespeare Festival has been of great pleasure and satisfaction to me. (laughs) But I had a good and satisfactory life before as well, so – there you are.
0: I want to ask quickly. But, but we don't I no was concern. not
1: the bad cop, and you're, I think you're No, I said they no, were, the, no, was were. was that
0: you were the good cop? Yes, What's the I was, statement that the I read and because I'm, yeah,
1: because I was autocratic and I I didn't have to make the decisions that Joe had to make. Joe made decisions, uh, which are the decisions of artistic directors, which I will do these ten plays and not these hundred plays, and so you have to say a hundred nos to the ten yeses over a period of time. And then I will hire 100 directors and fire 50 of them and replace 20 of them by myself. And some of those things uh, don't go down as well as you might like. And you must be willing, and Joe was willing, to take whatever um, consequences that resulted from that. But Joe was a very pivotal person. He could turn on a dime and – I remember he said, this play is a play, a woman's play. The play was Boom Boom Room by David Ray. He said, only a woman can direct this play. And therefore he hired a woman who we didn't know well. And I can't remember her name, actually. Uh, But he hired her. And then a couple of weeks in, the play wasn't working too well, into rehearsal. And Joe said, I've got to fire her. And he fired her. And, of course, he replaced her with him. Hmm. And it was no longer a play that only a woman could direct, Hmm. understand and direct. But that was... The
0: least of it, you know, that was the least that Joe could do. Well, I tre- keep trying to get out my last question about the New York Shakespeare Festival, which is we all know the story of how Chorus Line came to be. No, we so don't. We, we hear various versions ah, of how Chorus Line right. came to be and we have documentaries and we have yeah, books. Yeah. I'm just wondering from your perspective what you feel the real impact of Chorus Line was on that institution because sometimes – those kinds of successes for a not-for-profit can be a mixed blessing. Um, I don't
1: think A Chorus Line was a mixed blessing for the New York Shakespeare Festival. It was an undiluted, unadulterated blessing. Uh, money for not-for-profit organizations, uh, the number of organizations that have been corrupted by an excess of money, not-for-profit organizations, performing arts or anywhere else, uh, I suspect you can count on very few fingers. I, I don't have any. I don't think the Shakespeare Festival was spoiled by the uh, the vein, the gold vein that it hit with the chorus line. On the contrary, I think it sustained it. And whether the, whether the Shakespeare Festival uh, labored um, under the burden of an excess of resources, I, I don't think that's what happened to it. I don't think it spent lavishly and or was corrupted. I think that what happened uh, was a different kind of phenomenon, one might ask. Was Joe corrupted by not the money of a chorus line but by the fame and success of a chorus line? Did that have, did that success and fame of A Chorus Line, and he as producer of A Chorus Line, affect him in some negative way that impelled him a number of years later when he opened a play called The Human Comedy, an adaptation of the Soroyan book on Broadway, the marquee of, I think, the Plymouth Theater, but it could have been the Royale, bore not a plastic sign saying The Human Comedy by William Soroyan, but a rather large, naturalistic, cut-out, photograph in color of Joseph Papp. Hmm. Do you remember that? No, I do not. I was not in New York at that time. Right, But it was a very strange manifestation that I think had no precedent. I don't know which producer from the most notable from, I don't know, that Ziegfeld ever put up his own picture on a marquee. Hmm. I, don't, I know Merrick didn't. I, uh, I, Kermit Blumgarden certainly didn't. Uh, Robert Whitehead didn't, you'll be hard put to come. But Joe did and uh, go track the – go analyze that when – in your leisure time.
0: Once you and Mr. Papp parted ways in 1978, I'm fascinated and have always wanted to ask you. You ended up working with Francis Ford Coppola and were involved in two major works – through his company, one the film "One from the Heart," which I'm an aficionado of, I Everybody's really like the movie, there but nobody f- went to see there it. Only seven
1: hundred aficionados, <laughs> and there were only a thousand admissions.
0: But it was it was it was not a big success. But also the restoration of, of, Napoleon. The, of the Napoleon. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering how you went. From I was at the theater, theater last
1: night, and a man sitting in front of me turned to me and said, "Bernie," and I said, "Yes," and he said, "Paul Bougays," and I said, "Paul." And, I say, and Cora said uh, – Cora, to whom I am married, said, who's Paul? I said he was one of the conductors of Napoleon. We had a hmm. series of conductors. So I saw a conductor last night.
0: But how but did I, you happen to, to end up suddenly oh, in film Francis, work after obviously decades in the film? Francis,
1: uh, Francis, somewhere between Godfather II and um, – after Francis completed Apocalypse, that is completed it, Completed the shoot and it was still in post-production. He made a trip to New York and on his trip to New York, he called up uh, Joe and said, can I come and see you? I'd like to talk to you. Well, having already achieved great notor- – not- not- I don't even want to say notoriety. What do you call it? Uh, notoriety. Fuck it. Uh, because of the godfather, Francis, was a name to conjure with. Anyway, so Joe said, sure, come on down, Francis. Anyway, Francis came to see him, and Joe was rude. There's no other substitute. He he would say, oh, yeah, you're a big movie maker. You make popular movies. Uh, and I don't know what he said. I wasn't in the room with him, but he was very off-putting. And at the end, he said, uh, he called me in and said, Bernie, uh, this is Francis Coppola. He made the movie, uh, you know, The <laughs> Godfather. Um, show him around the building, hmm. but I know that Joe had not been um, nice to Francis. He had been competitive with Francis. It was a case of who's got the bigger dick, and uh, and Francis, of course, the large man, and Joe was slight of stature, as we say. Um. Anyhow, so I was very nice to Francis and tried to make up. I was the good cop. Mm-hmm. Uh. But taking him around the festival on that particular afternoon, which is vivid in my mind, lo, these many years later, the year was 1970, 77, 78, 78, I'm pretty sure. Um, But taking him around, there was stuff going on in every room, you know, in in a number of the theaters. And and it was fun to show Francis around. And I didn't know him. That was my first meeting with him. And – but I was as nice – to him as I'm being with you today so uh, or nicer <laughs> um, anyhow at the end he, we said goodbye to each other and that was that mm-hmm. and then surprisingly uh, a number of m- months later um, Francis called me and left a message saying I'm, I have acquired Zoetrope Studio, I've acquired the studios, your Metro studio in Hollywood and I'm forming a an old-fashioned kind of movie company, and I would like to talk to you about the possibility of your coming to work here. And the rationale was, since you understood how the public theater worked, I want to have something like that in movies. I want to have writers, and I want to have directors, and I want to have actors, and I want to have technicians and designers, and I want to have them all in a company, and I want a writer's building. And we're going to have a giant Ticonderoga pencil on the top of that building so that everybody will know that's the writer's building. And he said, so come out and see me. I'll send my plane for you. I go, oh, wow, nobody's ever offered to send their plane for me. It turned out he didn't have a plane at all, Francis. <laughs> he, he had the use of a plane. But anyway, he sent the ticket instead. I mean, So I went out and saw him. And we went down and we saw the Hollywood Studios. And I had just by that time been gone from the festival a year uh, uh, because I had been fired a year before. I did ballroom. I did uh, uh, Ballroom with Michael Bennett and then I did uh, Bosoms and Neglect, John Ware's play with John Walp on Broadway and then I was out of work. There was nothing else scheduled and that's when Francis called me. It was barely days after Bosoms Hmm. and Neglect closed and so I went out to see him and then I came home and said, uh, it's a job. He wants me to come there and be – the title he was offering was uh, Vice President um, – of of creative affairs or something like that in the new Zoetrope Studios. And uh, so Cora and I talked. Cor was in the middle of building the Joyce Theater at that time, and we had two little kids in school. And it was a, a job that was tremendously attractive. Hmm. And Francis is a very charismatic person. And so I, we said yes. And so Cora stayed here, and I went there. First for a year in San Francisco and then a year in Los Angeles. And uh, it was a tough time, hard time, but it was a a wonderful time in many, many ways. Making the movies was fun. We made four movies, actually. We made Hammett, The Escape Artist, um, uh, Black Stallion Returns, and One from the Heart. And the four movies cost about $50 million that we didn't have. It was all on credit, and we we shut shutting down. Every week was a wrap week because we didn't think we'd be able to go on. That way because of those four movies, one from the heart was 35. Hmm. and But it was fast. It was sleight of hand, sleight of hand. And uh, the movies got made. But the movies, all four of them, grossed under a million dollars. I mean it was just pathetic. And so the company was bankrupt and I came home. Hmm. When but the were, friendships oh. that grew out of that, the friendship with Francis and uh, – And the friendship with Ellie and with the kids all began there Hmm. and
0: continues. When you were approached for the formation of Lincoln Center Theater, at that time, again, we have to position it for people, the Beaumont at that point was considered a deadly house in which almost nothing could succeed, was the popular opinion. Isn't that amazing? You know, so were you – Brought in simultaneous with Greg Mosier? did Greg was Greg there and invited you? How did you come to the new Lincoln Center Theater?
1: Um, what happened sequentially was uh, that a number of board members from the Richmond Crinkley days were still the board, the designated board. There were about oh maybe ten or twelve of them uh, were there, but the board had fallen into dysfunction. Uh, when Lincoln Center rejected Richmond's plan to reconstruct the Beaumont as a proscenium theater. Because what happened in between between was Marty Siegel, uh, the chairman of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, booked in because the Beaumont was dark over an extended period and it seemed to be in stasis. Uh, Marty had the opportunity of booking in through the good uh, auspices of Alexander Cohen, a Broadway producer of some repute, the Peter Brook Carmen, uh, which was originally supposed to have gone to a theater called the New Amsterdam Roof Theater. Did you know that?
0: I didn't know it was supposed to go there, no. no I mean, again, that go. would have had to be rebuilt. Well, it was yeah, years later. It there was a bad
1: hole in the roof. Yeah. I mean, and was, the hmm. Needlelanders wouldn't fix it. And so that was out of the question. And uh, so I Marty spoke to... Um, to Peter Brook, I believe, or to Alex about doing it in the Beaumont. And they decided to do it and they did it. And of course, it was extraordinarily successful. And suddenly people were scratching their heads and it seemed to be saying or the slogan came out of it, there seems to be nothing wrong with the Beaumont that a hit doesn't cure. And um, as a result of that, the board sort of became came to life again, The member, the remaining members of the board. And upon recommendation, they hired John they, – uh, they attracted John Lindsay, an old theater lover from way back, uh, to come and reform the board and reactivate the theater. This is John Lindsay, the former mayor of New York. One must add. Um, anyway, John did – and this all happened in the fall of 1984. Simultaneously, I was teaching up at Columbia, a graduate school. And uh, just out of a sense of pl- – well, no. I must say you, you didn't mention and we didn't mention to each other that the New York Shakespeare Festival had been at the Beaumont from 73
0: to 75. The very famous uh, Three Penny Opera with Raul Julia was performed there. Yes.
1: Yep. And also the, uh, the Cherry Orchard by Andre Serban uh, with uh, Irene Wirth, mm-hmm. also very famous. So the theater did work while the Shakespeare Festival was there. But Joe didn't love that theater particularly, and so he just walked away from it in a very ungentlemanly way. Uh, and the theater was dark for a number of years until the Peter Book Carmen came in, and the theater seemed to work fine just as it was. So Lindsay was brought in. Lindsay began a search, and he called, He took uh, counsel with Skylar Chapin who was the dean of the Columbia School of the Arts. And I happened to run into um, Schuyler on 44th Street outside the Algonquin Hotel one day. And he said, oh, I wanted to meet with you and talk to you about the Beaumont Theater. And I said, that's funny, Schuyler. I'm teaching at your school, you may know. And one of the things I teach in my theater administration class is how to make the Beaumont work. And a scholar said, uh, uh, have you got anything written? I said, no, I'll write something. And so I wrote a kind of a 10-page piece about how and why the Beaumont might be resuscitated and why this, the present, that time might be a good time to achieve it. Anyway, he was very taken by it. And he called me in to meet with John Lindsay and talk about the paper that I had written. And uh, John Lindsay said, well, would you be willing to serve as a consultant to us? I said, sure, I'll do that. And he said, we'll pay you. I said, no, you don't have to pay me. I have a job. And he said, "Uh, well, would you take the job? And so John Lindsay offered me the job of executive producer, which didn't have the title. But whatever it was, uh, they had already settled on Gregory as artistic director and had talked to him. And Gregory uh, had recommended me as well Uh, because Gregory was working in cahoots with Mike and Mike uh, Nichols. And uh, Mike uh, and Gregory solicited me and said, come on, we'll have a lot, we'll play together and we'll have a lot of fun. Anyway, um, I did. Hmm. And so Gregory and I joined forces. Mike slipped away in the night. And Gregory and I opened the theater in the fall of... um, in uh, actually, in the spring
0: of eighty, I have eighty five. Eighty five, yeah. yeah. So, because what the Beaumont of eighty five, because um, what the Beaumont most needed was a hit. How quickly did you get to a hit? Well, very quickly,
1: one must add. We did. Yeah. we opened <laughs> with two uh, uh, two David Mamet plays, The Shaw and Prairie Sheen two one acts and clive barnes writing for the times that said uh, i understand or we understand opening uh modestly but this is modesty to a fault hmm. so that was a bad notice and the next play up was a revival of john where's the house of blue Leaves*, also in the mitzi newhouse and it was sensational it was really remarkable it had a stunning cast consisting of john mahoney stocker channing Swoozy kurtz uh Uh, Chris Walken uh, Ben Stiller and I'm forgetting a couple of others anyway it was very very striking and uh, House of Blue Leaves which had opened some years before off Broadway and then got burned out at the Warehouse Theatre and was never revived you know it was never continued although it had been quite successful so it was fulfilled in a way that it hadn't been before Hmm. and the theatre was up and running and that was it
0: Hmm. Now, you have been at Lincoln Center Theater since it began operating under that name. Greg Mosher was there five or six years, maybe a little bit longer than that? Greg was
1: there from 85
0: to 91, six years. Um, The change, so often when an artistic director changes at a theater, you sometimes find that management changes as well. I'm wondering what the experience was for you of having started up the theater with one man – And then ultimately changing partners, Um, to we should say, anyone who's got
1: a lot of experience dancing knows that changing partners is part of the dance. And uh, what happened, in fact, was when word when Gregory informed the board that he did not intend to renew his contract, the uh, the president of the board, a man named Victor Palmieri, said, uh, and I remember his words. he said, Bernie, is there anybody out there? And I said, yeah, I'll get together a list. And so I did. I made a list of some six people whom I considered to be candidates to replace Gregory. And uh, and Cora, the woman to whom I married, uh, I had five people on the list. And... Said, uh, why didn't you put Andre on the list? And I said, well, because I don't think Andre would leave Playwrights Horizon." And he said, what are you talking about? He was very interested in taking, what's his name's job at Yale? Um, who was the guy who was the first? Robert Brewstein. No, it was after.
0: After Brewstein, Lloyd
1: Richards. After Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And Andre had indicated he would be receptive to the idea of going to Yale. And I hadn't remembered that or I would forgotten it. So anyway, so I called Andre on a, Saturday, on a very well-remembered Saturday morning and said, Andre, on Tuesday, Gregory is announcing that he's leaving the theater because he wants to make movies. And I've got a list of five candidates, and I think you know all of them or have worked with all of them. And so I wanted to run them by and just get your reaction to them as replacements for Gregory. I went down the list of five people. And Andre, in his generous way, spoke very uh, su- supportively of all five. They were good people. So Andre said each one, one was better than the next, Jack O'Brien. And he spoke with heartfelt praise for Jack. And so he went for the five. And um, and he saw in each one of them the qualities that would make them ideal choices to be the artistic director of the theater. And I said, and what about Andre Bishop? And he paused for a hair's breadth and he said, Andre might be very interesting. And then he proceeded to talk about Andre in exactly the same tones as he had been talking about the other five and with the same objectivity and distance. And I remember, and I think it's absolutely true, Uh, his final line was, and all things considered, I think Andre might be the most idiosyncratic, but I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I said, thanks, Andre. Could we meet on Monday? This was a Saturday. And he said, yes, let's meet. I said, but let's meet secretly because, you know, I don't want anybody thinking and talk. And come and sit. I want you to sit in the theater for a while and just look at it because, after all, it's quite a jump to go from Playwrights Horizons to this big theater at Lincoln Center. Anyway... He did. and I, But I hung up the phone that day and I said to Corey, Andre's going to take the job.
0: Hmm. And that's how Andre got the job. Whenever I speak with people in the theater, with anyone who's involved in artistic creativity, you always, I always want to ask, is there a favorite? And I always get the answer, oh, we love all of our children equally. We don't, we don't want to say that. But is there, in your time at Lincoln Center, um, a show that, for you, was particularly memorable—not a favorite, but one that that you found most meaningful to you. Um, <clears throat> I went down the list of
1: plays, or I do it periodically. Actually, I put an asterisk on each title that I especially regard, and it, although obviously popular plays, plays that do well, plays that are well. Uh, received plays that earn their keep or better. Uh, it's hard not to love them. They're like gifted children. Uh, I I I don't know whether I'm going to answer the question or not by saying there's one more than anything else, uh, because of the list. There's some 135 on the list at the present time, and. Of those, there are about 30 or 40, I don't remember, that have asterisks by them, which means they're very important to me. So that A Man of No Importance was very important to me, for example. And I don't know if you saw it. It was a musical. Uh, But I loved that play. And Joe Mantello did such an extraordinary job in the staging of it. Needless to say, I loved Contact. Contact was just such a lift. And how how can I talk about South Pacific and say how much South Pacific? To this day, I go in, I hear the overture, I watch the stage retract, and the orchestra be revealed, and the audience is thrilled because a little coup de teat has been performed right before their eyes. Or the end of it, you know, which is equally good. But um, I don't know that there's anything that induced quite this totality of feeling uh, that The Coast of Utopia did. Because there was such a realization by the director and the company and the designers of an extraordinary body of work. I mean, it was a three-play piece, so it was more... I mean, nine hours. He took more time than anybody else ever did. But it was such such time well spent. So enriching to be there so it ranks very very high but Mm -hmm. we have been extraordinarily fortunate i believe that the what passes for success anywhere you know uh for profit success not for profit success god knows everyone defines success in their own terms but there are objective terms too so that uh any lay person could say if they're a close watcher of the theater well the plays that seem to me to have succeeded for me are and you fill in that list um but we've had – oh, but the number of them tends to be, I believe, there's a 20% success rate if you have to sum it up. I mean, whether it's 18 or 23 is virtually irrelevant. But it's a low – you know, it's low there. And whether you use the commercial barometer of recoup some of all of its money or uh, what the notices are or how the audiences respond. But if you take all of them in and you say, well, 20% is a good number, that's not so bad. That I think that our rate in my terms of success – have been in the 30% category. So Hmm. of the 135, there have been some more than 30 that I esteem very, very greatly.
0: Hmm. You have mentioned several times in this interview the woman to whom you are married, (laughs) Cora. um, That's because,
1: do you know why I do that? Well, what do people normally say? My wife. Right. What's my... You think
0: it's too possessory?
1: It's not too possessive. It's possessive. It's Mm -hmm. not too... Uh, It's possessive. I have my wife, my horse, my ox... My cat, my dog, my rifle.
0: Well, that's why I was very careful not to say your wife. No, no. No, no, you can say your wife. (laughs) I can't say – I choose not to say Because when I go home tonight, she won't be there to yell at me. (laughs) But you've you've mentioned her and she – you talked about her building the Joyce. She is the head of the new 42nd Street. She's the builder in the family. Your daughter Jenny has – your old title no. now at the public i 'm just wondering, um, does the Gersten family get together and talk theater all the time?
1: No, not particularly we uh, no I mean uh, one says sometimes what 's happening to one another. Cora and I talk uh, Cora, because she is the proprietor of the new forty second street studios uh, knows who 's canceling their rehearsal time. <laughs> And uh, so she she receives distant early warnings uh, or who's booking rehearsal time. So, uh, but she's remarkable because she's left behind her a trail of structures that are quite notable. Do you know about 890 Broadway? Of course, first studio building and, uh, and her uh, custodianship of the Elliott Feld Ballet. But she began life as a dancer and I met her when she danced in Central Park in, uh, in the dance festivals that we used to have at the end of the summer. Hmm. That's where we first met. Hmm. And we got married in the Anspacher Theater between ergo and the memorandum. And Joe said, get the fucking wedding going. I got a rehearsal.
0: <laughs> well, on that note, having gone longer than usual, let me say, Bernard Gerst and Bernie, thank you for being our guest today on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and you can follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and The American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.